Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week is super special for me. We have author Matt Ridley, uh, famous for The Rational Optimist, both the book and the best-selling book and the blog. He has a new book out called How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. It seems like a perfectly perfect time to talk about this subject because I feel like we need more rational optimism and lots of innovation to get out of the current pandemic crisis, both the natural causes and the man-made causes. Welcome, Matt. It's an honor to have you on the show. Matt, it's great to be on your show. Thank you for having me. So I have to ask you, what's it like to launch a book in lockdown? Because all of the old rules of selling books, uh, lots of signings and, and lots of promotion, I guess that stuff can't happen right now. That's right. And so I'm sitting at home, uh, but I'm packing in a lot because what I don't have to do is trek through airports and hotel foyers and so on. So I can I can do a, a lot of online stuff. Uh, and that feels like we've turned a corner on that, that people have got more comfortable with it, with all the different programs. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to uh, doing more of this in the future, actually. I mean, I did a, a talk in Ecuador the other day. Well, the book's not yet on sale in Ecuador, but it will be one day. That would have been quite a uh, difficult to organize to find the time to get to Ecuador. So I'm rather hoping this might flatten the world a bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm I, not I, saying I'm not saying it's a good thing that we're having a pandemic, but I'm saying that there are there are uh, aspects of it that are not so difficult for someone like me as they would be for other people in ordinary walks of in other walks of life. Well, well needl needless to say, uh, innovation is responsible for the fact that you and I can talk and that that you can give a speech in Ecuador. And and I, I've I've described myself as as kind of privileged during this pandemic because Free the People is primarily a staff of of remote people all over our country. We've always worked through technology. We distribute our product through technology. So we're we're not part of the sort of fallout from the the physical lockdown. So um, that's an accident that's that's good for us and and really bad for people that don't work in sort of this this communications ideas based industry that you and I do. Exactly. And I, I think we're, we're we're fortunate and some of some people in our world in journalism don't sort of realize how fortunate we are and how different from from the rest of the world. It's interesting to do the thought experiment of what this pandemic would have been like if we tried to lock down our countries 10 years ago, uh, when very few of us had really good broadband and uh, the programs for video conferencing and indeed audio conferencing weren't great. Um, and, you know, everything dropped out the whole time and the, the sound quality was poor and so on. So it would have been much harder, I think, to keep some of these things going the way people have might mean we wouldn't have done quite so many Zoom calls every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of a double-edged sword because I, I feel like uh, as someone that has spent a lot of time almost romanticizing about about the power of democratizing ideas and the power of, of, of decentralizing the pursuit of knowledge through technology and social media, I'm looking at this this, what I would view as a very overwrought one size fits all approach to this pandemic and it and it appears to be very much driven by social media and what uh, comedian Bill Maher calls fear porn we're we're sort of scared to death and accepting of 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 models and and mandates as if um, certain people are smarter than the rest of us and I think that runs fundamentally counter to everything your new book is about I think you're exactly right and it's 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 distressing to find these new technologies in effect used to to spread a top-down message and a uh, and a fear message um, and uh, you know certainly in the UK were experiencing that it was actually surprisingly easy for the government to scare people into staying at home people were very compliant they're easily scared people don't like to be told they might die of a disease uh, they they will change their behavior very quickly if you tell them that it's much harder to unscare them into going out there. And we now have a problem in the UK that the teachers don't want to go back to work because they say the risk is still there. Well, the risk w was always very small from children and for children. Uh, and 
it looks to have got much, much smaller still, and it is quite ridiculous not to uh, open the schools again. Um, uh, the, most of the pandemic has been in hospitals and care homes. It, is, it has not been nearly so rife in the community, and th there are literally no cases still of a child giving this disease to an adult that anyone knows about. Um, and as a result, um, we ought to be able to put society back together again, but it turns out that unscaring people and telling them, no, it's fine, get out there again and uh, earn a living is not so easy. Yeah, and, there's, and I assume this is going on in the UK. In our country, um, I, I would very much classify myself as a rational optimist, and, and I distinguish between sort of the, the natural disaster that was the virus pandemic itself and the man-made catastrophe of, of locking down the economy and we have all sorts of supply chain disruptions and, and Washington DC is, is eagerly passing trillions and trillions of dollars in, in what they describe as help. One small version of that is very generous unemployment benefits available uh, far more broadly than we have traditionally done in this country that, that create a really perverse incentive for workers not to go back to work because they can make a lot more money not working, and and if they're scared as well, you you have this this perpetual lockdown that is not the result of of human behavior, but the result of of the the government's designs to fix it. I agree with that. And uh, another aspect of it is that we've had terrible logistic problems here with the testing programs where uh, you know they've been unable to roll out the tests to as many people as they want people have been unable to get tests when they do get tests they don't get the results back for several days they tried to centralize all the testing facilities to one or two main testing centers in the middle of the country um, uh, it's as if the government is discovering belatedly that Oh, so it's not so easy to set up a giant logistics net network by command and control from central direction. Because at the same time, during this epidemic, while all this testing is such a mess, um, the supermarkets are not empty. They are full of fantastic produce and they are functioning well. And the one I go to has Perspex screens now between you and the checkout person and uh, all sorts of other social distancing advice and one-way systems so that, you know, people don't spread the disease. So the, the private sector seems to me to have responded extraordinarily well to this. Uh, I mean, quite how the, the, the trucks are still getting the fresh fruit uh, from the ports to the supermarkets all over the country, I don't know. All I know is that there isn't a commissioner in charge of the process, and if there was, it would be a heck of a lot worse. Yeah, kind of a Frederick Bastiat point. Yes. That we we don't know why there's food, but but Paris is still fed, and I'm hoping yeah. that Paris is still fed today. But uh, it sounds like London is still fed, and and that's good news. Yeah. And and that that sort of gets at the the essence of your book because you you essentially argue uh, and and. And help me if I if I screw up your thesis, but that innovation um, happens for a lot of reasons we don't fully understand. It it's not about making a buck so much. It's not about the smartest people in the room, the inventors, actually um, putting all of the pieces of the puzzle together, and that it it uh, it only works because we know so little about innovation itself. It only works when you sort of get out of the way and that empire is fundamentally destructive to that innovative spirit that, that appears to be built into human beings. Yeah. Now, I think that point about empire is, is, is a good way of, of a good lens to see this through. Um, the Song dynasty in China presided over a period of tremendous innovation about a thousand years ago. Uh, and then the Ming dynasty shut it down very successfully by trying to direct it, by trying to, to control it. Um, uh, and you've seen similar uh, episodes uh, in other parts of history and at other times in other places, that what what the, the way innovation really works is that government gets out the way and says, you're free to do something. We don't, we're not telling you what to do. We're not telling you how to do it. Um, we don't want you doing harm, but uh, we'll come down on you like a ton of bricks if you do. But otherwise, please try whatever you feel like. And actually, 
there is quite a nice example of government doing something actively that did encourage this process, uh, when you think about it. And that is the, the, the various pieces of legislation passed by the Clinton administration in the 1990s to liberalize e-commerce. Uh, they were extraordinarily libertarian um, pieces of legislation. They basically said, go out there and do what you like and you're not liable for it. And, uh, and here are ways in which you don't have to ask permission before you set up an e-commerce company. Um, uh, and the result was, you know, Amazon and everybody else got going. Now, that, that would have happened anyway, but it, it happened a darn sight quicker because of that piece of legislation. So it's a very good example of a, of a piece of legislation that was permissive. It wasn't about trying to stop you doing the wrong things. It was about trying to let you do the right things. And I think that's a very important distinction that needs to be borne in mind. As you say, if we try and specify and uh, mandate the innovation we want, we usually end up picking losers, not winners, uh, and getting it wrong. Um, we can't really tell which direction innovation is going to go in. I'm fond of quoting this fact that we were expecting a blizzard of transport innovations in my lifetime. We didn't get them. We weren't expecting a blizzard of communications uh, innovations in my lifetime, we did get them. So it, it doesn't make sense to sit here and say, in 20 years time, we want to be at point X uh, in a technology. What would, does make sense is to say, from this moment on, we'd like you to be free to go out and do trial and error, and to bring serendipitous ideas in from unexpected directions, and see what you can come up with in these different areas. I want to get specifically to the, it seems appropriate to, to focus on your, your second chapter about public health, um, because it, it tells um, a number of stories. And oh, by the way, the fact that you use actual human stories to explain this very complex, mysterious process of entrepreneurship and innovation, I think is everything, because we... Um, at Free the People, we've very much tried to translate economics into stories, and you can you can sort of root for good guys and and be frustrated with bad guys, and, and relate with the actual process by which this stuff happens in a way that if it's just theoretical, it it doesn't really make sense. I, I think economics is kind of a a rarefied way of thinking about things for for people that very much respond to uh, humans and stories and. And and how they and their neighbors, without even knowing it, figure stuff out. So, um, I think you're I, right. You're right there. And I, I, this was a conscious act that, in order to, to tell the stories in the, the to tell the story of innovation, I said, well, what do I like reading? I like reading stories about people, about real people who did real things, interesting people with interesting lives. You know, uh, who they slept with, who they feuded with. You know, but obviously that isn't. The theme of my book, yeah, uh, and to some extent, the theme of my book is that the individuals don't matter as much as we think they do, <laughs> and they sh we shouldn't put them on a pedestal as great innovators and discoverers. We should we should see them in the context of the network they operated in. But nonetheless, because people like reading stories like that, and I like writing stories like that, I want to tell the human side and, and humanize the whole process, and also each little life will give me a series of lessons, which I will then pull together at the end in the, the, the non-story part of the book, as it were, about how innovation works. Before we get into some of these stories in this chapter, um, I, wanna, I wanna put it in sort of modern context because um, throughout this book, I'm constantly thinking, I, uh, we love to quote Hayek on, on my show and it's actually become a drinking game. Every time I quote Hayek, depending on the time of day, people have to, to, to drink a beer or something like that. But uh, the, the, the modern, um, and you've written about this, uh, one, of, one of the reading assignments for everybody watching this podcast is read Matt Ridley's blog, The Rational Optimist. And a lot of these, uh, uh, these, these, are, these are great sort of hot takes on, on what's going on today. And, and you wrote something about uh, Neil Ferguson and the Imperial College model. And, and I'm thinking about it in the context of of Hayek and what he called scientism and how we've replaced um, iterations of discovery and data as it is revealed and, and dealing with, with something that is radically unknown and uncertain 
in in the case of this pandemic with with this this very arrogant idea that we can with great certainty model the future and in this case predict as Neil Ferguson originally did that 2.2 million people would die in the United States this was the singular impetus of the lockdown um, but you've written that that model was was kind of a joke yeah well it took a long time to get the Imperial College team to reveal the coding behind their model. And when it did come out, the experts on coders, coding that I consulted and I did this in collaboration with a British politician, David Davis, um, uh, who understands coding better than I do, uh, the, pretty well everybody said this is not the best practice in coding. Uh, this is a bit of a mess. Uh, there are large chunks of uh, code code here that don't that haven't been split up that haven't been properly annotated um, therefore you can get error propagation uh, on a significant scale you know a small assumption that's wrong somewhere can lead to a big error elsewhere um, and uh, it, it, it the, the whole thing's a little bit of a mess compared with how a model should be now that was very interesting because it's a glimpse inside the black box, which as you say, has been immensely influential. You know, I'm not here to say that, uh, you know, it's a waste of time doing any modeling. Of course, you know, we need to um, try and he's done his best, but I'm sorry to say with his very bad track record, Neil Ferguson's group uh, on previous diseases, foot and mouth, BSE, bad, mad cow disease, uh, swine flu, bird flu, um, we did need to know on what basis was this model coming up with results. Um, and uh, But as you say, the problem isn't so much that the model itself has flaws, because all models have flaws. It's that modeling itself doesn't deserve to be put on a pedestal. Um, I think this has become a real problem in recent years, that you've seen people use models in the scientific literature as if they were uh, revealed truths. And they often use rather giveaway language here. They talk about the results of a model. Well, they're not results. You know, a model, it doesn't produce results. It doesn't produce data. And the distinction, I mean, quite often I've found, I've found this particularly in the climate debate, you have to press a scientist quite hard. When you say that data, do you mean data or do you mean stuff that came out of a model? And quite a, Michael Crichton made this point years ago. He said that people are talking about the outputs of models as if they were data. They're not. And I think this goes to one of the, the key insights about expertise. Yes, you can have expertise about the present and the past. You can for sure know that this bridge is designed in such a way that it will not fall down. And we rely on an engineer's expertise for that to be true. But that's not the same as you can saying you can have expertise about the future, because in a complex um, multifactorial system like a climate or an economy or a pandemic, um, it is not possible to be precise about the future. And the track record of scientists who may be brilliant about understanding the present, the track record of predicting what happens in the future is terrible. So the way I put it, and Philip Tetlock has written about this brilliantly, actually, about the, the failure of expertise. Indeed, ex the more expert you are, sometimes the worse you are at predicting things because you are blinded by your own particular expertise. Uh, so there is no such thing as an expert on the future, um, uh, except in the sort of banal sense that we all know the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning. So to one of the um, one of the things that I kept thinking about, um, of course, when I'm not thinking about Hayek, I'm thinking about Ludwig von Mises and and his uh, his definition of entrepreneurship is is quite similar in a lot of ways to your understanding of who an innovator is. And it's not about sort of uh, uh, developing a new technology because you want to make money and you want higher marginal returns on investments. It's about judgments of the future, the radically unknowable future. And entrepreneurs, there's this great passage in Human Action where he, he says, you know, the entrepreneur charges forward even as the masses laugh at him. And and two two other points that I pull out of this, and we'll get into this, I'm, I'm eventually, I'm going to get to this chapter, but but one is that um, innovation is is radically democratized. Like there's there's 
there's, as you just said, we know, we know, we have a good sense of what happened in the past. Um, and that, you know, theoretically, we could know all of the innovation that exists um, up until this moment in time. And we're in a lot of ways, we're standing on the shoulders of of, of nameless thousands of other innovators when we come up with a new idea. But but for Mises, the entrepreneur looks around the corner of history and imagines an alternative future. And quite often he's he's a laughing stock. He, he that that person is is mocked. And and I'm thinking specifically of of you talk about uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Lady Mary. I'm going to butcher yes. him. Lady Mary Pierpoint was the um, woman who brought inoculation, um, vaccination, if you like, although that term came later, um, to the UK uh, in the early 1700s. She didn't invent it. Uh, she was the wife of the ambassador in Constantinople, uh, where she picked up this habit and saw that the women in the harems in the Ottoman uh, sultan's court were deliberately giving children small doses of smallpox from people who had survived the disease uh, and as a result were on the whole usually making them immune to later attacks um, and she having been ravaged herself by smallpox and seen lots of people die of it uh, was desperate for her children not to get it uh, and so she tried her children she tried this on her children and it worked. She came back to Britain and said, everybody's got to try this. And she was not just mocked, she was persecuted for this dangerous suggestion, you know, that you should actually go around giving kids smallpox. Can you think of anything more lethal or dangerous or stupid? Um, and at the time, of course, medicine was very good at doing stupid things like bleeding people and so on, but but uh, it didn't like the idea of this even more stupid thing. Um, and there's a similar story in the United States, uh, you know, where Cotton Mather and others were pushing this idea and were were vilified for it. Um, so um, uh, it you do need a lot of guts to be a, a an entrepreneur. Often, um, I quote the 17th century uh, economics pioneer William Petty in the book as saying, "In the beginning, uh, every inventor has to run the gaunt loop of all petulant wits." Uh, who will tell him what a bad idea his idea is. Um, uh, and yet, as you say, the future is unknowable, so they might be wrong, and most of them are. <laughs> um, the point is you've got to have lots of them, and some of them will be right. Uh, it's not that everybody who has a wild idea about the future is, is and as, as a entrepreneurial mindset is going to be right. Um, I talk in the book about the invention of the search engine, which is an unbelievably obvious thing in the 1990s. Once you've invented the internet, it's bound to be the case that that you have to invent the search engine so that people can navigate their way around the internet and find what they want to find. Or so you'd think. And in fact, of course, it's true that hundreds of people come up with ideas for search engines. And if if Larry Page and Sergey Brin had never met, we'd still have search engines. You know, you don't need the Google founders to, to achieve that. But did anyone see the search engine coming? Certainly as the way of making money out of the internet, let alone as one of the most important tools of the internet. No, nobody in the 1980s is writing about, you know what, in a few years time, we're going to be able to have programs that enable you to find anywhere on the in the world uh, a piece of writing about a certain subject. Um, even the Google founders themselves didn't realize they were inventing search engines. They thought they were cataloging the internet to start with. And they certainly didn't realize they were going to make money out of this invention. So um, uh, th there is a, an extraordinary asymmetry about how obvious something looks in retrospect and how difficult it is to predict in prospect. You know, what's interesting about the, the stories you tell again and again and again, um, it's not at all clear why someone like Lady Mary would 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 take on that project, um, given all the persecution and and the, the risk of failure in this case, would have meant uh, the potential death of her own child, who she who she tested on. Why do innovators innovate? <laughs> Why do innovators innovate? Um, uh, I, I think that there has been a 
uh, I mean, innovation has been part of human culture now for a long time, hundreds of thousands of years, actually, if you, I go back in the book to the first stone tool makers and things. Um, but it's been a very rare phenomenon. Most people would not have, even 500 years ago, you could live your whole life and not encounter a technological innovation. Um, you'd, you'd, be, you'd die with the same technologies you were born with. But at the same time, ticking away in the background is this, uh, you know, is the fact that overall human beings are innovating all the time. And particularly in the last couple of hundred years, it's become a, a habit. Um, I, I, it, it, since it's such a collective phenomenon, I don't think it really helps to drill into the psychology, the mindset of individual innovators too much. They are ambitious, like lots of people but people can be ambitious without being innovative. Um, uh, I think it's the fact that, that when people put their brains together and share ideas, they not only benefit, you know, they, they work for each other. They say, I'm gonna do this if you do that. And the result is by specializing, by exchanging and specializing, people discover that there are ways of doing things better in their own specialization that help other people and vice versa. Um, so I think it's as much that people are consumers of innovation as producers of innovation. That's where the, that's where the sort of psychology really matters. You know, you, um, I, I think it's in the first chapter you quote Deirdre McCloskey, um, and she's written extensively trying to explain what it, what is special about the last 100, uh, 200 years. And she, I think, coins the term innovationism and she's she's sort of pushing it back against the label of capitalism i think a little bit um, because because freedom isn't about accumulating capital um, but the one thing that describes all of the beautiful things that have happened and and everything you describe in your first book the rational optimism optimist has to do with this innovation mindset and I, I think it's a human thing, but it it it's fragile in the sense that that governments seem capable of sort of stamping it out uh, with too much overweening top down. Uh, right. Dictates. I mean, Deirdre makes the point very eloquently, and I I sort of three quarters agree with her that that what changed was that innovators were allowed to get on with innovation, that that up until um, say seventeen hundred. Um, uh, if you tried to come up with something new, the government came along and told you you couldn't or your, or the vested interests ranged against you, stopped you or something. And then there was a new respect for innovators and they weren't treated as sort of adventurers or projectors or whatever the word would be uh, in the English culture. Um, uh, that I th I'm sure that's true up to a certain point, but I think it's just that after 1700, with the amount of energy becoming available in the economy through the the use of heat for work for the first time with coal and things like that, you are literally not able to stop people innovating because there's so much of it. They're doing it in so many different places and times that it escapes any attempt you make to, to shut it down. Uh, I write, I have a, book, a chapter in the book about resistance to innovation, and I talk about not just government resistance and the the resistance of vested interests um, but also um, just all sorts of ways in which people culturally don't like it and it's quite it's nice to take you know a really sort of ridiculous little example as I do in in that chapter which is the example of coffee coffee was an innovation it was an innovative drink that entered uh, Arabia and Europe around 1500 uh, from Africa and caught on like wildfire wherever it appeared. And the first thing any government did anywhere was try to ban it. So in Cairo or Constantinople or Marseille or Paris or London, when coffee arrives, there are laws to stop it, to shut it down, to stop people drinking it. And there's two reasons for this. One is the vested interests of the existing um, uh, drinking industries so the wine and beer industries don't like this new competitor um, and they fund research from medical scientists in Marseille at one point to uh, to demonstrate that coffee is bad for you 
you know, they and they come up with all sorts of pseudoscientific nonsense paid for um, to say that it dries out your kidneys and fries your brains and all sorts of things. So you shouldn't be drinking coffee. But the other reason why governments try and ban coffee uh, is because coffee tends to be drunk in coffee houses. People like it freshly ground and freshly brewed. So they go to coffee houses and coffee houses are full of other people people who've just had a stimulant to drink, so they're rather conversational. And so it tends to be a place where a lot of chatting happens. And once chatting happens, and the Royal Society is born in a coffee house, for goodness sake, um, once conversations start to happen, sometimes the topic of conversation becomes whether or not the king is doing a good job. And sometimes the conclusion is that he's not doing a good job. And kings don't like this. And King Charles II is fantastically explicit about this in his proclamation in 1672 banning coffee houses. He says, the reason I don't want coffee houses is because I've heard that people are going there and telling lies about me. It's fake news that's happening in coffee houses. We can't have that, so they must be banned. So, you know, when you think that they wouldn't even allow coffee to come in as, as an innovation. Or the potato. I write about the potato as an innovation. Think how much harder it was to persuade people that they needed steam engines running through the countryside, scaring the horses. Uh, uh, you know, it's remarkable that we got innovation at all uh, under these circumstances. The, hand, the, the umbrella was opposed by the handsome cab industry because when it rained, people might not rent a cab. Uh, the... Uh, Margarine was outlawed by a number of American states for a very long time after pressure from the butter industry. Yeah, and you talk about uh, uh, the, the known killer of tobacco and the, the um, uh, potential replacing of that really bad habit with, with vaping and all of the vested interests that, that glom onto this, including the, you know, the World Health Organization before COVID their, their biggest concern, at, at least in terms of uh, media, was vaping. And that that's anti-human health as far as we know so far. Absolutely. Now, this is a very nice example of, of a technology that, um, that doesn't, isn't harmless, but it is a harm reduction technology. It's displacing a more harmful technology. And that is bound to be saving lives. Um, uh, and uh, it's the... the, the um, uh, the, the, the US and UK approach to it are interestingly different here because the UK becomes quite enthusiastic about vaping and it, the, the genie gets out of the bottle and there are now 3 million people vaping in the UK, nearly as many as are smoking. Um, and uh, they are all very evangelical about it and saying, look, this is I've been unable to quit smoking, but now I've found a way to do it and I'm feeling much better. And yeah, there might be some risks, but I'd rather run them. And even the government has, has sort of come around and said, actually, you know what, this isn't such a bad idea. People should do it. We're still going to stop you advertising it and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, but what we will do is regulate for product quality to stop a black market developing in harmful versions of this technology, whether the nicotine is too strong or you're using cannabis instead of nicotine or you're mixing it with chemicals that are bad for the lungs or something like that. That doesn't happen in the US because the US is still taking a more prohibitionist approach to, to vaping. So it doesn't pass any product safety legislation. So you don't, so you tend to get much more of a black market and you get these deaths from vaping as a result. It's quite a striking difference. And it echoes, of course, the hundred year old debate about prohibition where by banning alcohol rather than regulating it, uh, the US uh, created an enormous black market in very dangerous types of alcohol. It created the spirits industry, really, as opposed to the beer and wine industry. Uh, and, of course, led to an enormous amount of organized crime, uh, a mistake that eventually had to be undone within about 10 years. You know, the, the, that story plays out again and again throughout your book, but throughout the um, sort of free market critique of, of top-down regulation, it's a combination of of sort of public choice factors where um, invested interests, and it, it could be government bureaucrats, it could be um, corporate interests, but but people that represent the existing established order don't like innovation and they fight against it. But, but the other half of that is going back to this idea of scientism is, is sort of a, a pretense of knowledge and, and what Hayek would call fatal conceit 
and I'm specifically talking about the World Health Organization, which I just mentioned, there does seem to be a very unhealthy trend towards not just um, centralizing scientific discovery within governments, but actually conglomerating all of that into one true thing. And, and the World Health Organization seems to have tremendous influence in our country where it's, it's convinced YouTube and other social media um, uh, monopolists, for lack of a better word, that, that they get to decide which science is real, which facts are appropriate, whether or not the lockdown is good science. And to me, that that's, strikes me as one dangerous and, and super unscience. I think the point about it being super unscience is absolutely crucial. Um, uh, and I agree with you about the World Health Organization. This, this organization has, a, has a, a poor track record in its day job, which is to look out for pandemics. Uh, and it has spent, well, most of its budget's been spent on first-class travel for its officials. But apart from that, uh, a lot has been spent on uh, bossing us around diet and indeed about climate change too. The World Health Organization came out with a statement in 2015 that the greatest threat to human health in the 21st century uh, is climate change. Well, that does not suggest an organization that was paying enough attention to pandemics as a threat, uh, in my view, um, uh, particularly at a time when uh, deaths as a result of droughts, floods and storms has been going down, not up. But your your point is absolutely right, that the one thing we must never do with science is force it to, to speak with one voice, because that way science becomes dishonest very quickly. And the reason is something called confirmation bias, which is the human tendency to uh, want to find evidence that backs your hypothesis rather than to test your hypothesis against evidence that might not back it. And scientists say, oh, no, no, we go out and try and disprove our own theories all the time. That's nonsense. They're not uh, superhuman. They don't do that. They champion their theories, just like any other human being would do. They act like prosecuting attorneys. You know, they, they want to find the evidence that convicts the, 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 the criminal, as it were. Um, but science itself has a mechanism that stops that confirmation bias running away into false hypotheses and checks it when it gets too far down the one line. And that is the fact that science is very decentralized and actually encourages disagreement. Um, so Professor A says, I have a theory, I'm championing it, I've found lots of evidence for it, I'm not going to look at the evidence against it because I don't want to destroy my own theory. Professor B comes along and says, well, hang on, here's all the evidence against your theory. I'm sorry, that's wrong. And I'm really enjoying writing an article saying you're an idiot. You know, uh, that is actually the way science works. It's uncomfortable, you know, for Professor A to be told he's an idiot and he's got it all wrong and his whole theory's up in smoke and he's got to go back to square one. But I'm sorry, it does need to happen because that's what stops science becoming a religion, in effect. And particularly with climate change, we were told, no, that isn't going to be the case this time. This time there's only going to be one view. It's called the consensus, and you must sign up to it. And anyone who doesn't is, is, uh, uh, is, is out of order. Now, in fact, the consensus, when you drill down, is a range of possible outcomes in climate change, from harmless to harmful, by the way. But they never tell you that. They always try and insist that though there's only one view on this and we mustn't talk to anyone who doesn't agree with it. Well, that's dangerous because it will turn it into a cult. And you've seen this you know, with the, the growth of Extinction Rebellion and this, this sort of extreme versions of this, um, ostensibly relying on the science, but in fact going way beyond it into a sort of cult-like version of what climate change might do. I'm someone who thinks climate change is real, by the way, and potentially dangerous. I'm not of the view that, that, that nothing is happening or that it's all caused by the sun or anything like that. Um, but I do think that we are uh, possibly overreacting to it, uh, particularly in the short term. Um, and uh, so that was a very good example of going down the, the route of forcing science into a consensus approach. And I think you're seeing exactly the same today with the World Health Organization dictating through Google and YouTube what can and can't be said. So there's a very good oncologist professor in uh, the UK called Carol Sikora, who uh, was professor of uh, uh, medicine at 
Buckingham University. He's immensely distinguished uh, oncologist. He's very good epidemiologist and everything. And he's been quite vocal in this country saying, uh, I think we need to start easing the lockdown. Um, he's not a, a fanatic lockdown skeptic, but he is a little bit that way. And he did a, a conversation with somebody about whether or not he thought government policy was right on, on the lockdown. Uh, and he produced some arguments and the other chap produced some arguments. And it was an interesting debate. YouTube removed the video of it. Yeah. I mean, this is no, you know, this is not a nutty um, Scientologist or astrologer or horoscope person or something. You know, this is a professor of cancer, a very distinguished one. That's ridiculous. And it can only have been an algorithm of some kind that was translating some sort of World Health Organization uh, consensus enforcement uh, in, a, in a ridiculous way. This gets to, um, I, I agree with that a thousand percent, and I, I, I'm sort of a free speech absolutist, and and the idea that you can call the the smartest experts, uh, you know, maybe it's Fauci, maybe it's the creator of the imperial model, the the people that are held up on the scientific pedestal, um, I should be free to call that guy an idiot and make my arguments and and offer an alternative perspective because he may well be an idiot. We don't know unless we go through that that process of iterative discovery and all that. And, and this particularly matters right now. So we have a governor in California. I'm certain a number of other lockdown governors in our country have said, essentially, we've shifted from we're going to flatten the curve to make sure that hospitals are not overwhelmed to nobody gets to really do anything until we get a vaccine. In, right in California, right. we've got we've got the same here. We we, yeah. we were we were doing this to save the hospitals, and now suddenly the hospitals are quite safe. It's not an issue, and yet we're still supposed to be locked down. I don't follow the argument. But imagine and imagine, like in California, there'll be no public events of of any significant size, uh, no baseball, no Grateful Dead concerts, which which devastates me personally. Um, oh, no. Sorry. No public gatherings. I'm I'm in mourning about this, but um, so so think about the political pressure, the top down. We need a vaccine um, solution, and I'm I, I want to if you could tell the story about uh, Pearl Kendrick and her critique of of the emerging scientific consensus on whooping cough, mm -hmm. and I think I'm getting her name right. And, yes. and how, how it was that there was a political imperative to get a product to market, which turned out to be a flawed product. Uh, or did yes, I the story? No, I think, I think those are two different um, stories. There's Bernice Eddy and the polio, uh, which was a flawed product. Um, but okay. Pearl Kendrick developed a whooping cough vaccine in, in rapid quick time, in four years, with her colleague Grace Eldering. And they did it sort of in their spare time. Um, they did it uh, unpaid. They did an incredible job. Nobody thought they could possibly have done it right. They thought their trial, trials must be flawed. It turned out they weren't. They were, they were good trials. And so within a very short time, um, they developed a, a vaccine. Now, that was nearly 100 years ago. And it still takes as long to produce a vaccine today. That's a good example of how we need more innovation, not less, and how we've actually neglected innovation in vaccine development in particular, because there's not much incentive for the pharmaceutical industry to go into it, because a vaccine does itself out of business too quickly. You're seeing this already in the case of the COVID epidemic, where uh, some of the vaccine trials are worried they're not going to be able to find enough COVID cases out there to test the vaccine against. Um, uh, so th th this... Pearl Kendrick did a great job, but there was somebody called Ber Bernice Eddy who had uh, huge reservations about one of the polio vaccines not being safe yet. And there was government pressure from the top down to get it out there and test it and give it to people. Uh, and um, it resulted in hundreds of thousands of extra polio cases. She was right that it wasn't ready. It wasn't yet safe. Um, and she then went on to make another criticism and said, I have found evidence that there is a virus that is contaminating the polio vaccine. 
um, called SV40, which is a, a monkey virus that is growing in the monkey kidney tissue where we're making the vaccine, uh, and it's infecting the vaccine. And we are injecting a monkey virus into the into human beings, and this virus is capable of causing cancer in human beings, particularly brain cancer. And we may cause an epidemic of brain cancer as a result. Now, lots of you, lots of us, including possibly you and me, um, uh, are of an age where we will have received a contaminated vaccine. It doesn't seem like there has been an epidemic of brain cancer as a result. Um, the vast majority of us have not uh, suffered. Uh, um, so we may have dodged a bullet there, but she was drummed out of her research work for this worry. And we and we sh we know now that she was right. There was that contaminant. There were several other viruses that were getting into vaccines. Now, this doesn't make me an anti-vaxxer. Get me, don't get me wrong here. I think vac vaccination is one of the great in innovations of all time and has done an incredible job in saving lives. And I think today's vaccines are extraordinarily safe. But I think we mustn't, um, we mustn't, when we get into a situation where the government wants something done, we must allow uh, sensible, rational scepticism uh, to be heard as well. Um, I would hate that to be taken as an argument for not having measles vaccines and so on today. So it's a, it's a difficult one to, to, to write about. And I, that's why I have it in the book, to try and yeah. balance these two issues. Yeah, it, it, it strikes me that um, your point is that politics corrupts the innovation process. And if it chooses yes. the wrong horse, we could have a horrifically uh, destructive outcome. And I, I think that's, that's sort of a regional thing to think about as we move forward. Another really nice example of that, I think, is the, uh, the, the three technologies for uh, lighting, the incandescent bulb, the compact fluorescent bulb, and the light-emitting diode. So we had, compact, we had incandescent bulbs for decades, they were doing fine, and then along comes Philips and others, and they invent the compact fluorescent bulb, and they say it uses less electricity, uh, but it's more expensive. Um, and we can't seem to get people to buy it because they don't like paying up front and they don't quite like the kind of light that comes from it. So please, governments, will you go out there and tell people to buy it in order to save electricity for the sake of the climate? And the government's obliged around the world. We were, uh, remember, there was a mandatory thing about 10 years ago to phase out incandescent bulbs. You weren't supposed to buy them at all. Um, there was a black market developed in them. I stocked up on them. Um, and we were supposed to have these darn things that lit up rather slowly and gave a slightly yellowish light and uh, were very difficult to dispose of because they were full of mercury. Um, uh, and yes, they used less electricity, but they were more expensive to buy. Well, it turns out that if we hadn't gone down that route, the light emitting diode was waiting in the wings, which uses even less electricity, produces just the light you want and switches on instantly, was a far better technology than either of these and would have naturally displaced the incandescent bulb very quickly. But its introduction was probably delayed by this government insistence we go down the compact fluorescent bulb route. That's a really interesting example of, of government picking what it thought was a winner, but it turned out to be a loser, and getting in the way of a winner that was coming along naturally. The um, I want to jump to chapter eight um, because I, it's sort of your rules for innovation, and I think I think those are a, a good roadmap because you know the the fear is always again and again and again that vested interests, particularly governments with the power to do so, can stop uh, solutions that we can't imagine from happening, and and we're going to need a lot of innovation to get ourselves out of this mess and move forward. Um, and you already touched on this with the uh, discussion of vaccinations. Innovation is gradual. There are no silver bullets. There's no magical, create a commission, hire the smart guys. You got six months, let's get it done. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Um, for a start, the invention of the new prototype is only the first step. You then have to drive down the price and drive up the reliability and so on of something. Also, once you've developed the prototype, you then incrementally improve it again and again and again and again. Um, so there is the, it's a much more gradual process than we think. Even the disruptive innovations 
don't actually do a brilliant job to start with. They're not much better. The first of the new technology is usually not much better than the last of the old technology. The first uh, transistors were actually not much more efficient in terms of cost or energy than the last uh, vacuum tubes in computers, for example. Um, uh, so uh, so we, 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 we tend to get too obsessed with this question of disruptive overnight spectacular innovation whereas actually most of the time what's happening is incremental gradual innovation um the other point you make and again everything i read from you reminds me of hayek uh, somewhere frederick hayek i think it, in law legislation liberty uh, makes the argument that for every rule an innovator breaks you follow a bunch of rules and and most of those rules are tacit you couldn't even explain what they were and you say that innovation is a recombination of technologies. Absolutely. And and Brian Arthur made this point originally a long time ago that most of the technologies we have are combinations of technologies. They're not uh, they're, they're not de novo things. They're just combining things in different ways. There are you know there are gazillion atoms and gazillion elements in the world. We we've hardly scratched the surface of the numbers of ways of com combining them. Um, uh, and uh, that is, of course, how evolution works with respect to genes, is that it doesn't tend, some evolution is new mutation, but some of it is simply uh, taking genes and putting them together in new combinations or genetic sequences in new combinations. Recombination is a big part of evolution. That's what sex is designed to achieve in biology, is designed to, to, to shuffle genes. So a lot of what happens in innovation uh, is taking new technologies and putting them together in unexpected ways. The innovation is a team sport. Um, I, partic I particularly like this one because you sort of blow up the myth that there's, you know, that let's say Steve Jobs did it all by himself. Um, and you don't think that's true. No, I don't. I think I, I, the, the, even the, the really famous ones relied on other people, whether it's Thomas Edison or, or uh, Henry Ford uh, or someone like that. They are obviously employing a lot of people, but they're relying on collaborators and predecessors and successors as well to do it. I give the example of um, Norman Borlaug, the guy who invented uh, high-yielding wheat varieties that made a spectacular difference in India and Pakistan and basically abolished famine. Um, great guy, deserved the Nobel Prize, fantastic innovator and persuader of the world to change its ways. But he didn't get the idea of dwarf wheat varieties out of thin air. He got it after a conversation with a guy called Burton Bales, who said there are these short-strawed wheat varieties that have higher yields. Um, Bales got it from a guy called Orville Vogel in Oregon, who was growing these short-strawed varieties and crossing them. Vogel had got the idea from a guy called Cecil Salmon, who was in Japan at the end of the Second World War, and had visited agricultural stations and seen some of these dwarf wheat varieties. And... Um, uh, in Japan, and it was Gonjiro Inazuka in Japan who had been crossing and breeding these varieties, and we don't really know where he got the idea, but some people say he originally got it from Korea, um, uh, and there the trail goes cold. But if you then follow the trail forward, the key event was Borlaug persuading Swaminathan in uh, India to uh, pursue this route, which made a huge... So you can trace this story from Korea all the way around the world to India, um, almost completely encompassing the world, picking up uh, members of the team along the way who contributed to it. And I think that's a nice example of, of how innovation actually works. And it also uh, sort of, you, you make the argument, I don't know if you use this phrase, but there there's a division of labor where the entrepreneur and the inventor and the guy that markets and the guy that manufactures and, and thousands of other functions that we can't even describe, you need all of those things in cooperation to really achieve something meaningful because you could have the best idea in the world, but if you're a guy that comes up with crazy ideas but you don't know how to implement, you you really don't have anything. That's exactly right. And, you know, I, I, I give the example of Marconi as being an unusual example of someone who was both good at the original invention and good at turning it into a practical commercial innovation. Uh, he stands out because that was often not the case. Um, 
Samuel Morse is another similar example. But otherwise, you nearly always need, you know, the the the, the dreamy thinker and the practical doer working hand in hand, um, uh, and 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 lots of practical doers, people with different kinds of practical expertise. It really is a division of labor. And that that sort of gets at. Um, I want to get back to the crisis at hand and and the radical uncertainty we face. Um, one of your one of your subtitles in that chapter is that innovation prefers fragmented governance, and <laughs> yeah, that that's a that's a fancy way of saying I wish the government wouldn't help so much. <laughs> well, if you look at the track record of empires in encouraging innovation, it's pathetic. You know, whether it's the Ottoman Empire or the Ming Empire or the Roman Empire. Um, on the whole, they don't produce nearly as much innovation as they should, given their scale, given their wealth, all these kind of things. Um, uh, whereas if you look at fragmented city-states like northern Italy in the Renaissance or the Low Countries in the 1600s uh, or um, uh, China during the Song dynasty when it was much more fragmented than, than in later dynasties, um, or indeed America, which looks like an empire from the outside, but it's not. It's it's a series of states with different policies. And what what works here is not only that you get sort of uh, local incentives working hard uh, so that vested interests can't get a grip so much, uh, but also that inventors and innovators can move. They can up sticks and go next door to somewhere where they're going to be more welcome. This happened all the time in Europe. Um, people like Gutenberg, the inventor of printing, you know, moved because uh, he didn't like the way he was being treated. And you see this today. Just a couple of weeks ago, Elon Musk was musing about leaving California for Texas because he's fed up with the uh, rules and regs that he's having to work under in California. Um, he may be bluffing, who knows? But the, the, the point is that, that, that that's one of America's great strengths is that it isn't one great big unified country and that's one of europe's growing weaknesses is that more and more it is not prepared to do mutual recognition you know what's good enough in britain is good enough in france which is the way trade normally works but to say no the rules must be exactly the same in britain and france that's what the harmonization that the european union has been forcing on more and more sectors uh, is all about it really is an empire in 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 uh, uh, early stages, and that word is not mine. That word is Guy Verhofstadt's of the European Parliament. He boasts about the fact we are building an empire. Um, it won't end well. I'm sorry, but it will. You know, if if you have only one way of doing things, then you're not going to discover other ways of doing things. Well, that that kind of leads to my to my final question, and I I look at it mostly through the lens of of what we've done in the United States, but. Uh, the, the the lockdown the monolithic lockdown approach. There's a few exceptions that that we've both uh, talked about in in our various projects. But generally, we have this grand social experiment that that came from sort of an international empire of sorts. That we were going to lock everything down in the United States. We have unprecedented unemployment. Uh, we have all sorts of disruption in supply chains. Uh, because of mandates, uh, hospitals are going bankrupt instead of being overwhelmed by COVID patients. All sorts of um, failures of central planning. Uh, this is my gotcha question. Are you still a rational optimist? <laughs> yes, I am, for a couple of reasons. One is that I've been confronted with this question every year for 10 years since I wrote that book. Um, you can't still be a rational optimist after the financial crisis, after the war in Syria, after the Euro crisis, whatever it might be. Um, uh, and yet we've seen incredible improvements in people's living standards, particularly in the poorer parts of the world during that time. Yes, we've seen sluggish growth in America and Europe, but the rest of the world has had a pretty good decade. Um, and I see no reason to change uh, that perspective. But also because this is going to be a terrible crisis, a terrible uh, period, and it's possible that we will see a lot of um, dirigist and centralizing policies, as you say, but it will also inevitably be an opportunity. 
I mean, think if you were starting an airline now, um, well, not right now, but <laughs> in a year's time, if you were starting a new airline, you would um, think, hmm, there's going to be quite a lot of airlines not there anymore uh, and quite a lot who are on life support from governments. Uh, and that's going to weaken the competition. And there's going to be niches and opportunities for me to set up one. And I'm not going to have to use some of the legacy systems and old practices that were common in the airline industry before. Um, I'm going to invent smarter ways of, I'm going to, you know, think of better ways of getting people onto planes and off them. I'm not just talking about during a social distancing thing. I'm talking about afterwards, you know, when we really do get back to normal. Um, uh, likewise, all the opportunities for virtual meetings and so on, which we're all learning to do. We're all now comfortable with the software involved in that. It's great, but it's still pretty clunky. I think we've all, you know, experienced how difficult it is when there's 20 people on a Zoom call uh, trying to have a meeting. There's going to be smart ways of, of reinventing that. There's going to be huge opportunities in vaccine development. It's going to be well-funded. Um, there's going to be opportunities in diagnostic device development. Um, governments have learnt that they don't need to take six years to approve a new diagnostic device. They've been doing it in days. Surely they're going to learn that lesson and shorten the period of licensing of various technologies, particularly in the medical field. So there are going to be fantastic opportunities for entrepreneurs in the years to come. Even in a poorer world, and it will be a poorer world for a year or two. Um, and those entrepreneurial opportunities will, to some extent, act like um, great disruptions have in the past, whether it's war or even the Great Depression. You know, I mean, the, the, the 1930s was a terrible time, particularly for the United States. It wasn't so bad for, so, for various reasons in the UK. But it was a period of great innovation, actually. I mean, if you list the the technologies that developed in the 1930s from nylon to the computer, it's a pretty spectacular list. So it isn't necessarily the case that a time of global downturn is a time of uh, slowing innovation. It might be a time of speeding innovation. So for people that are drawn to um, political promises that um, quite often are empty. You know, we'll, we'll we'll cure this disease. We'll guarantee everybody a job, a chicken in every pot. Whatever the the political promise is, um, we're always we're always struggling. Those of us that believe in in freedom and innovation and and the beautiful things that happen when people are free to cooperate, um, we have a hard time explaining that to people that are afraid of something that is real and listening to a very solid, if empty, promise coming from a politician. What's your elevator pitch when you're approached uh, by a skeptic that, that says, Ridley, you're all wrong, the glass is half empty? Mm. Yeah, well, um, uh, I say, uh, try telling that to an Ethiopian whose income has doubled in 10 years. Uh, try telling that to, uh, try telling me that, that, that uh, this is a failure of the market, whereas it looks to me like a failure of government. You know, has the private sector done a good job of keeping the stores stocked during this um, epidemic? Yes, it has. Has the um, uh, government done a poorer job of um, uh, organizing the logistics? I mean, in the UK, our testing for this vaccine has been pretty chaotic. Um, tests have not been ramped up in frequency enough. People don't know where they can get them. When they do get them, it takes a long time to get the results back. The whole thing was centralized. It took a long time to, to, to get to that point, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why was that? Was that because it was, uh, uh, you know, it, it, too many uh, companies competing to try and do it? No, quite the reverse. It was because it was, try it was centralized. At the same time, uh, the the logistics of stocking the stores with food uh, has been remarkably smooth. You know, the, the roads somehow, I don't know how, but somehow from the ports, fresh fruit is getting to my local supermarket, despite the fact that the country is in lockdown. That is being brilliantly organized um, by the private sector and by the market. It's not, there is no fruit commissioner who's deciding how it's done, back to Bastiat again. Um, 
So uh, I, I think that's a key part of it. So where do you want people to go? I already mentioned irrationaloptimist.com. Uh, where do people get your book and where can they find more Matt Ridley? So the book is called How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. It's on sale since last Wednesday. It's doing really well um, uh, on the uh, on, in the online bookstores. And it will be one more heave from loyal readers. It could get into the bestseller lists and then the sky's the limit. Um, and uh, I'm uh, doing as many podcasts as I can to talk about the book. Uh, it's available from Amazon and lots of other places. Um, uh, all the, the main online bookstores and, and whatever bookstores are open offline as well. Um, uh, and uh, I tweet at Matt W. Ridley. Um, and there is, uh, as you say, my, my, my blog where I put articles that I'm writing. And I'm writing various pieces for the Wall Street Journal and other places uh, around this time too, mainly about the epidemic and its implications uh, as we speak. So um, I'm most grateful for the chance to talk about the book. It's been a really enjoyable conversation, Matt, and uh, we'll uh, hope to see you in uh, uh, the future somewhere. Yeah, hopefully when it's safe and legal, we will talk again in person. That would be great. Okay, thank you, Matt, so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.